this month on Security Management Highlights. The private sector is the eyes and ears of the government and can also help develop technology to strengthen Homeland Security. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa talks about how the U.S. private sector is playing an active role in defending national security. He was told that if he didn't improve, he could see serious disciplinary actions, including being fired. Assistant Editor Megan Gates stops by to discuss her cover story on the shooting of two television reporters in Roanoke, Virginia in August of 2015. She'll explain the events that led up to this tragedy and how employers can keep an eye out for telltale signs in workers who harbor grievances. Finally, learning a vertical is not easy work. You gotta do a lot of homework, a lot of research. Clint Hilbert, Chief Security Officer at Betafence, talks to us about navigating transitions in your security career. I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. When it comes to national security in the United States, the government simply can't be everywhere at the same time. That's why it's important the private sector plays an active role in helping protect against an ever-mounting array of threats. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by to tell us how it's doing just that. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. So this column is really interesting because I think it brings the private sector to the forefront in terms of national security interests in the United States in a way that we don't necessarily often hear or talk about. So tell us how you got the idea to focus on this topic for your column. Well, over the last few months, I've definitely noticed a push for the private sector and even the public to take a more proactive approach to security, whether that's protecting your digital data, reporting suspicious activity of your peers and neighbors, or the run-hide-fight approach to an active shooter. I think this is partially a response to the rise of the lone wolf terror threat. So when I had the opportunity to speak with a couple government national security leaders, I asked them if there has actually been a focus on relying on the private sector when it comes to keeping our communities safe. They both said that the government is definitely putting more resources into programs that promote the private sector. So speaking of being proactive, you know, we see a lot of terrorists these days getting past the normal security measures to carry out their attacks. And one of your sources said it's much harder these days to regulate the type of material that could be used to make a weapon or a bomb because these terrorist organizations, they teach their followers to take practically anything and turn it into a tool for violence. What did your sources say about preventing against these types of threats without over-regulating, especially in the private sector, because that's where the burden falls? Absolutely. So I spoke with Bill Evanina, who's a director of the National Counterintelligence Security Center, or NCSC, and Caitlin Durkovich, who's the Assistant Secretary for Infrastructure Protection at the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS. And they both say that the private sector is the eyes and ears of the government and can also help develop technology to strengthen homeland security. A really great example of this is a program through DHS that educates retailers how to identify chemical precursors or materials that are harmless by themselves, but when combined can make a bomb. So this program teaches employees at retailers like Home Depot or beauty supply stores or CVS to take notice when customers purchase potentially dangerous combinations of materials. Durkovich told me that the programs are also a way to strengthen bonds between local managers and law enforcement, so if something suspicious does happen, they know how to report it. Yes, in terms of physical security, I think that's such an excellent point because the private sector has so many employees that teaching them to be on the lookout is pretty important and that covers a lot of ground. And now transitioning into cybersecurity attacks and threats, especially the theft of personally identifiable information, how can the private sector possibly assist in mitigating against these types of threats? 
Well, Evanina told me that the NCSC has kicked off a really big campaign to educate federal employees about the risks of clicking on suspicious email links. Although it's gauged towards federal employees, he says it's applicable to the private sector as well. Clicking on malicious links is still a really big problem and an easy way for hackers to access sensitive information. In fact, Evanina told me that over the last few years, at least 90% of significant breaches have been facilitated through spear phishing. But this balance between support from a government agency and encouraging organizations to be proactive in their own security came to a tipping point after the Office of Personnel Management was hacked last year and personally identifying information of 21 million people was stolen. After the breach, the CSC reiterated that it wasn't responsible for teaching agencies how to secure their IT systems. The agency received a lot of backlash for that and for not alerting the OPM of potential vulnerabilities, but Evanina says the NCSC is responsible for providing intelligence information, but those agencies have to figure out how to protect themselves. And was there anything else that you wanted to add that your sources discussed or that you couldn't fit into this story that you'd like to share? There always is. Both of my sources talked to me a lot about what they thought the biggest threats would be in the next few years. Caitlin Durkovich did mention uh, climate change and so-called extreme weather and how it's becoming a top priority for DHS to address. This is a big deal for infrastructure because as critical frameworks are built or upgraded, they need to be able to withstand natural disasters both now and even 50 years from now. She says it's been a bit of a challenge to get security managers and infrastructure operators to take this threat seriously, especially as it pertains to national security and keeping the country running. And both Durkovich and Evanina mentioned the importance of the private sector in pushing the envelope when it comes to making the nation safer, whether that's through developing strong partnerships with local law enforcement, building technology or programs to detect potential threats, or putting pressure on the government to pass laws supporting security and innovation. All very important points and certainly poignant for our readers who are listening, many of whom are definitely involved in the private sector. So thanks for stopping by today, Lily. Sure thing. Vester Lee Flanagan II opened fire on two of his former colleagues from television station WDBJ on August 26, 2015, killing both of them. The shooting that left Allison Parker and Adam Ward dead was carried out while they conducted a live television interview. Flanagan, an ex-employee of the Roanoke, Virginia TV outlet, had exhibited bizarre and disruptive behavior during his employment, but the shooting took place nearly two years after he was terminated. Assistant Editor Megan Gates joins us to talk more about the details of this case, which she covered in this month's cover story and how companies might be on the lookout and respond to similar disturbing behavior. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. Megan, your story deals with an obviously disturbing series of events that happened at a Roanoke, Virginia TV station. And while this may not have been a preventable incident, I think it's important to say that there are some lessons that other employers might be able to to glean from this. Uh, Flanagan was very outspoken at that TV station, WDBJ, where he formerly worked. And Many employees complained about his behavior, and Flanagan himself even filed several grievances in various forms against people at the station. Can you walk us through those events? Yeah, Holly, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the things that makes this whole incident so, I guess, unique and gives us much greater access than we would have to this kind of information normally because it's normally confidential personnel records, but because 
Flanagan filed a civil lawsuit against WDBJ. We now have access to all of these complaints that he made about his colleagues and also that his colleagues made about him and his behavior while they worked together. So some of those things, Flanagan was hired at WDBJ in March 2012 as a multimedia journalist. And it appears from memos that were sent between staff and to Flanagan that he began having problems with his co-workers, especially the photography staff, almost immediately. Uh, there were several documented instances of heated confrontations with colleagues. You know, one of them happened in a station live truck where they were out working with Flanagan and reported that there you know, was an incident in the live truck that left them feeling extremely uncomfortable. Other disagreements arose when Flanagan was out shooting some B-roll, so that's the footage that you see when somebody's like walking down the sidewalk or someone's driving down the road on the news. And he was calling photographers' work shaky and unusable in front of interview subjects, you know, people who did not work for the station. So when these things were happening, his colleagues were reporting his behavior and he met with his supervisor, Dan Dennison, the news director, several times to discuss his behavior and monitor his progress for improvement. Flanagan was required to contact WDBJ's employee assistance program and work on the tone of his interpersonal relationships, which we now did not really improve. And he was told that if he didn't improve, he could see serious disciplinary actions, including being fired. Over the less than a year that Flanagan worked at the station, there were lots of moments like this documented in a civil court case that he filed. So along with these instances, there was more criticism of Flanagan's work that he put together for WDBJ when he was instructed, you know, to improve his news gathering skills and on-air performance, his time management skills and listening skills, and also the tone of his interpersonal relationships with his colleagues. So this list you just walked us through, there's obviously more to it. That's not the end of the complaints against him. And you spoke to a couple of sources who explained that there are kind of typical behaviors exerted by grievance collectors, and that might be something employers can be on the lookout for and perhaps use to their advantage. So what did your sources say? Yeah, so I talked to Dr. Larry Barton. He's a threat assessment specialist and professor of management at the American College at Bryn Mawr. And he was really interesting and had lots of great points. But one of the main things we talked about is what is a grievance collector and grievance collectors are people who work or you know in life something happens and they simply cannot let it go they can't get over it and they and this happens again and again and again so it makes them a collector of sorts because we all have grievances at work to some extent you know you get upset because you're working on a big project and it's interfering with your schedule to go pick up with your kids at the end of the day things like that are a grievance but most people can get over that and let it go and they don't get really upset. But grievance collectors can't do that. They sort of hoard their grievances. They make lists of who they interacted with, what they did during the day. They take copious notes and write really long emails to sort of document different instances that happened to them. And in these emails that are often sent late at night or on the weekend, which shows that they're taking out their free time when they're not at work to sort of make their grievances known to their supervisor, you know, the president of the company, or to like the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And also one of the things that Dr. Barton and I talked about is when a grievance collector is sort of writing out these manifestos, how they write them. So they tend to take the perspective of it's a black and white issue, there's no gray area, and that the grievance collector is in the right, and you, the employer, are in the wrong, and your behavior needs to change. 
because it's unacceptable. And there's also, Dr. Barton said, lots of references to sort of God and righteousness, that the grievance collector is on the side of righteousness and is pursuing a cause of some sort that the employer needs to address and identify and change. So eventually Flanagan was fired from the station. Can you remind us what were the circumstances that led up to him being fired? And how might employers handle tricky situations uh, when they're terminating someone who has built up so many grievances? You know, as we discussed earlier, Holly, there were obviously lots of instances where Flanagan was brought in to address his behavior with his colleagues and also the quality of his work. He had been told he needed to work on his interpersonal relationship skills and his time management, doing better reporting. Um, And he was given sort of a two-week time period to fix that. And in that two-week time period, Flanagan, again, had a major disagreement with some of his colleagues. They were working together over the weekend, and one of Flanagan's colleagues had been asked to read one of his scripts before filming and going on air, and Flanagan was upset about that. And he called her out and had a discussion about it and told her he should be able to review scripts and that he had a problem with her reviewing the scripts because they had the same amount of work experience. Apparently, Flanagan was very confrontational and threatened to tell um, their supervisor, Dan Dennison, about it. So the colleague emailed Dan that evening after the incident happened to tell him what had happened. So the next day that Flanagan was back at work with Dan Dennison, his supervisor, Flanagan was called into HR's office and explained that he was being terminated due to unsatisfactory job performance and his inability to work as a team member. And Flanagan got very upset and said, you better call police because I'm going to make a big stink. He eventually had to be escorted from the building by two police officers. And while he was being escorted from the building, other employees were recording the incident, including Adam Ward, a WDBJ photographer. And employees were told that if he was seen outside the station, they were supposed to call 911 immediately. And this whole incident, I spoke to, again, Dr. Barton about it. And he said this explains why it's so important for security to work with the HR team when they're planning to fire someone who they think might pose a problem or might get very upset or very angry. Because when people are fired, it needs to be done in a way to avoid embarrassing them. Because if people are embarrassed, that can lead to eventual retaliation against their former employer. So working with security to maybe fire the person at the end of the day so that they can be escorted from the building when fewer people are around or handling it in a different scenario so that that person doesn't feel embarrassed and like their whole office is witness to them being fired. And finally, of course, we now know that Flanagan ended up killing a reporter and a camera person, Adam Ward, that we spoke about earlier on air. It's just so disturbing. And obviously, no one could have seen this coming. But when you look back at Flanagan's behavior, his grievances, it does seem like such a sad conclusion. So how can companies come together in the aftermath of a tragic event such as this? How do you recover from this? And what did your sources say? Yeah, and that was one of the things that all of the sources that I spoke to, you know, Dr. Barton, Jay Hart from the Force Training Institute, and Kevin Doss, the fact that Flanagan targeted his former colleagues two years after they had worked together is almost unheard of. And in that instance, you know, the station did almost everything right. And sometimes these things, they just happen, which is why it's critically important for companies to think about if this happens, how are we going to respond to it to make people feel like 
they are safe when they come to work every day. So Dr. Barton talked about the importance, you know, of giving people time to grieve if there's a homicide at work and also making sure that your CEO and leadership are visible and that they speak about the issue, that someone is appointed to update the media and let them know what's happening and what the plan is to sort of reacclimate people to the idea of coming back to work and also what's being done for the victims. I know WDBJ, after the shooting, And after Allison Parker and Adam Ward died, they set up a memorial website page for them to update, you know, what was happening with their families, scholarships and events that had been created in in their name to benefit causes in the community that they were passionate about. They also added updates on the website of Vicki Gardner, who survived the shooting. She's the head of the Smith Mountain Lake Regional Chamber of Commerce, who Allison Parker was interviewing when Flanagan shot her. And one other thing that both Dr. Barton and Jay Hart talked about was the importance of mental first aid, of making sure that not only physically do your employees feel safe coming to work, but mentally and emotionally they feel safe. So Dr. Barton recommended requiring everyone, if someone is killed at work, everyone who worked with that person immediately or was on the same shift as that person being required to attend a professional counseling session and making those options available for employees to seek professional help if they choose so. He said, you know, some people won't participate and they might sit there and not say anything, but he's like, it's important to let people know that that option is available and that you as the employer care. Well, thank you, Megan, for explaining more about this case, uh, a lot of important details, and hopefully somehow companies can learn from this tragedy. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Holly. Finally, change is the only constant in almost everyone's career, and the same is certainly true when you're at the managerial level in the security industry. Clint Hilbert, CSO of Betafence, wrote a story this month on how to navigate those waters of transition and make a good impression while carrying out effective work. Hi, Clint. Thanks for joining us for the podcast. How are you doing, Holly? I'm good. You write in your story that taking control is a critical element when it comes to navigating a workplace transition, especially from a managerial perspective. Can you expound on that? Sure. Taking control doesn't really mean that you have to come off as a dictator. It doesn't mean that you got to get in there and let everybody know that you're the guy in charge or you're the gal in charge. It, you know, it really simply means that when you're in a leadership position, you have to lead. And that's what everybody is expecting you to, you to do. It's, they're all expecting you to get in there and be assertive and share what the plan is going to be. So what I'm really saying is that leading is just like being a coach. A coach on a sports team. You have to gather the team together. You've got to go over the rules. you got to learn the playing field and really tell everybody even the most obvious things, where the goalposts are at, and then start going down through and scrubbing through your team, finding out who your best players are, and arranging all of your team members so that they are able to use their strengths. And most importantly, I think, you have to repeat everything frequently. Look, you know, coaches don't typically come out one time at the beginning of the season and tell everybody what they need to know, and then you don't hear from them for the rest of the game. That's not what happens. They're there, they're constantly repeating the message, and they're involved in every aspect of what the team learns and how they practice every step of the way. To me, that's what taking control means, is to, is to be there, to be the daily coach, and to give the feedback and the instruction and guidance in in a very positive manner. So 
that's taking control. Thank you for explaining that. And you go on to say that building and strengthening staff is also important. So how can managers in transition make that happen? And how can they build trust in a new environment? Yeah, so building and strengthening your staff, it really kind of gets back to what I just said earlier. I know being like being the coach on that sports team. So here's here's what I do normally. This is what works for me. It works in almost every other place that I've worked at, that I've been at. I start by doing an assessment. So you've really got to assess what have you got? Is it worth keeping? Can it be better? Can it be improved upon? What's your workplace environment look like? Are there outside influences that prevent your team from being its best or functioning the way everybody on the team wants to function? This is a little bit of listening, taking notes, and then doing an assessment of what you've got. Once you believe you've got a full picture, you know who the players are, what your team's like, you've gone from the top to the bottom, you understand your management, that, you know what they're expecting out of the team, then you gather everybody together and you plan. It's important to listen to your team before you really make any decisions. And I found that nine out of ten times, the team already has most of the answers that you need to be successful. It's just that they haven't had the conduit or the mechanism or the support to get their ideas, to get their solutions to fruition. So if you're going to build and you're going to strengthen something, you don't want to build on a faulty foundation. The third step in this whole process would be to really share what's going on all the time. Even if sometimes you repeat yourself, you're just like that coach, you repeat, 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 and then it'll start to sink in. You never want to keep your team in the dark on things because then it that something will fill the void in that dark, and typically it's going to be distrust, and you don't want that. You're never going to get to that trust level. So sharing what's going on is key, communication. And then really, at the very beginning, before you pull the trigger on anything, before you take your first affirmative action to actually initiate your plan, you've got to let people know right up front. You're going to share in the wins, and you're going to share in the blank. And you've got to tell your team this before you go forward, because I think they need to hear it. And a lot of times, you, you'll get a leader in there that jumps forward, stands in the limelight when there's credit to be given. But every time there's something wrong, it's, it's the finger-pointing session that comes out first. Before It's like a knee-jerk reaction. Let's find somebody to blame. You've got to let them know you're there, it's a team environment, and like a coach, most coaches will stand up and take the blame for a loss and not blame their team members. You also write about communication, which I realize kind of overlaps with what you were saying earlier, and that's one of the things I really like about your story is that some of these themes get repeated throughout, but just in different ways, and one of those is effective communication. And you use your experience transitioning to GE's healthcare division as an example. What did you learn from that experience, Clint, as far as achieving successful communication with your team? You know, communication is so closely linked with a a company's culture, it's not funny. I mean, GE is a a huge company, and its leadership is extremely busy. Getting in front of a group of leaders in GE, for me, the first time, it was just what an experience. It was exciting, but it was brutal at the same time because I didn't really understand or appreciate the cultural difference between the locomotives division, heavy machinery, factory-style environments. Everything's big there, you know, so it's big, dirty, and loud. And then you go to healthcare which was quite the opposite, high-tech, clean environments for manufacturing, very sophisticated, closely related to the medical industry uh, with doctor's input and stuff like that. It's just you know, a real high-tech, clean environment. So there was a massive jump in trying to learn how they were going to operate and what the company culture was about. So learning how to communicate in the company's culture is something that's critical for success. And I quickly learned that my security department, 
was often perceived as an overhead function at, at GE Healthcare. It was kind of like a drag on the margin. So I had to come up with a way to restructure what we were doing and kind of find a way to offer it as a resource to the business leaders, as a benefit, rather than just a burdensome compliance machine. It's not fun. It's not glamorous. So my goal was to sell security as a service, and I campaigned a lot about it. You know, so I, I asked for input. I asked for advice. I sought out guidance, and it worked. So communication from a business perspective is something that if you're able to share what it is your department is doing and how that and how your function can benefit and be offered as a resource to business leadership, that's when you become a part of the business unit itself and become part of the team as a resource, as a needed resource, as a valuable resource. That is to me the key to successful communication within an organization. So oftentimes when you make a career transition, you could be entering into a completely new vertical. So how does a manager approach this sometimes daunting task of learning a whole new industry? You know, learning a vertical is not easy work. You got to do a lot of homework, a lot of research. In fact, going from one vertical industrial market to the next is a really challenging transition, the most challenging transition. But there's good news and bad news. So here's the good news. In our security profession, you have to go on the premise that everybody needs it. If you look at Maslow's triangle, okay, the hierarchy of needs, right after the basic need, food and shelter, air, comes being safe, having the, the sense of being safe and secure in your own dwelling, okay? So it is the primal first thing that humans seek in establishing their existence. I look at that as good news. There's a lot of people who always say the only constant in life is change itself. There is one other thing. Human nature, to me, is one of the other things in the world that remains relatively constant, which is good for the security professional, because security is all about regulating people. It's all about controlling and preventing unwanted action. There it is in a nutshell. That's security. So half the battle is already there. That's the good news. So if you're going to transfer from one vertical to the next, you're taking along a set of core security principles that can be applied in almost any business. But in the security industry, because you're regulating people, you've got to understand the vertical market because that's where all the people are. So there's where your business is. So the other half of that equation in switching the vertical is that's where the tough part is. And it's all about protecting people, processes, and property. And at the end of the day, that's what your mission is. So the better you understand the vertical, the better of a resource, the better of an asset you're going to be for that entire line of business. Finally, you write that maintaining the vision and staying true to one's own values is critical. Can you explain how those two pieces factor in? For me, this is a question that comes more toward the end of a person's security career than at the beginning to be answered efficiently. But I think that from the very start, it's how you've approached you as a professional from the first year you start in the security industry. So for me, it's important as a security professional and as a person to define who you are and what you stand for. So those who know me, they know that I always take care of my team. And I put them first before everything I do. If I have to, I'll go out and fall on my own sword to defend my team. And believe me, I've got some stomach wounds to show for it over the years. And I believe that in maintaining your vision and staying true to your own personal core values defines you as a character. When people know what to expect from you, all I can say is that, and this is universal to any industry, to any profession, when you demonstrate consistently your decisions, your responses, and and, and all of your actions, and you behave with dignity and humility and compassion, people will 
follow you. That's how you earn their trust. And, and I've been accused of being egotistical. I've been accused of being self-centered. But at the same time, I, I think that feeds on itself. You've got to have a team that believes in you. You've got to believe in the people that you pick and surround yourself with people who are well-qualified. I've always looked for loyalty and trustworthiness in those who were on the team because the last thing you want to do is to halfway down the road and then find out that every, everybody's bailed and you're the only guy in the canoe right now and here comes the whitewater. So you've really got to remain true to your own self. That is important. That's just another tick mark in the success block. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Clint. Okay, you're welcome. That does it for this month's podcast. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Be on the lookout for bonus material throughout the month. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.